Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2019. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And Chris. And we are continuing our coverage of uh, Frank Verderosa's Final Fantasy VII Internet series today, which may or may not be the same day that we recorded the last one. Uh, Don't give away the secret. No one wants to know how the podcast is made. How the sausage is made. Yes. I was going to say sausage. Podcast sausage. Yes. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Grind it up. Now, in this previous episode, which if you haven't listened to it, I don't know why you're listening to this one. But in that one, we did talk about our background Final Fantasy VII some. We talked about this fanfic a little bit. Mostly, it's 20 years old and it, you know, came out shortly after the game came out. And it's kind of one of the early, well-regarded or notable Final Fantasy VII fanfics that were that went around the internet. This is the second story out of eight. We're definitely not doing the other six, but we're going to be talking about this second one. It's called The Red Fist this time. Eris has been searched for successfully. They found her. Yeah, and there wasn't really a whole lot that happened, except that they resurrected Eris. So yeah, that's go. all. Nothing major. Yes. (laughs) After that, like, there's nothing else that a Final Fantasy VII fan would want to do, so it's a totally (laughs) blank slate here in terms of what the author is going to accomplish. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose that's true. Um, So how does this fan fiction start? It opens with a little action scene with Yuffie infiltrating some kind of building, and she gets caught, and... um, she gets into a fight with some unidentified man who, like, does unarmed combat with her, and yeah. she is beaten. It's kind of a short chapter, and it, I, I kind of like how the information's just a little withheld. Yeah, well, we do see the man, an older man, white hair, short beard, black uniform like the other people in this whatever facility she's in are wearing, and on the left breast with the insignia of a red fist. Mm-hmm. Title drop. Yep. So now we know. What the mystery is. Well, there's the red fist. Yeah, The red fist. Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, we've got it covered. We've <laughs> yeah. seen a red fist. Now we can yep. go home. <laughs> <laughs> One red fist. All right. So chapter two. Right. And then we start with another little action scene, which is Tifa and Cloud sparring, like, in, a, in the lawn in back of Tifa's bar. I, I That's what it says. Uh, yeah. That's about all the, like, description of the area we get. It's yeah. called, yeah. I mean... Well, uh, yeah, I think this tracks with how descriptions worked in the first story of this series. Well, speaking of calm, I'm not speaking of calm, speaking of description, what really makes me laugh is that Eris shows up about, you know, to talk to them about something. And, you know, she kind of, like, wanders into the, the sparring and, uh, you know, that lets... But let's Tifa brain cloud with an apple. He was trying to like cut apples out through the air, you know, while she was throwing them out yes. and that sort of thing. Sparring's not the word, training. Whatever. And they're just like, oh hey, Eris, like, what brings you around here? And that means that we totally skipped any emotional reaction between characters to Eris's resurrection. One hundred percent skipped, because there was no epilogue in the previous story. And here, like they're all just like, oh yeah, Eris, she's a person who is alive, well, who is around. Yes. Actually, the first thing that happens is 
Tifa's, you know, throwing apples at Cloud, and he's trying to defeat the apples. And he sees her, he turns around, he gets hit by the apple. Right. And so I think immediately we have this sense of tension um, that becomes comes to fruition. Oh, yeah. Pardon the pun, fruition. Ooh. Later on, between, you know, the Cloud with Tifa and Eris, like, deciding who that he's going to be romantically involved with. Because Tifa we're dealing insecure. with 90s monogamy situation, whatever. So. Yeah, well, well yeah. Like, yeah. Um, this fan fiction, yes, yeah, certainly. I don't know. I find it interesting how this um, becomes such a focus here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it is indicative of how fans sort of think of Final Fantasy VII, but the romantic subplot is a very small part of that game. Right. Like, I was yeah. actually very disappointed in this story because in the first one, it seemed like Cloud was really interested in bringing Eris back, but it never seemed but like a romantic, kind of romantic thing. Right. And Tifa was was supportive of that. And yeah, she was... I mean, she wanted to bring Eris back, too, if it was possible. She yeah. was mostly just doubtful about, like, Cloud, is your mental state, like, okay? Because right. this doesn't seem like and a reasonable, sane thing that people try to do. As it turns out, she was right to be worried about because this. Because he was because, being manipulated. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, I mean, one would feel he should have really been prepared for this sort of thing to happen again. But what I like in the first fanfic is Tifa was still very understanding of how much Cloud cared for Aerith. And, like, she was like, yeah, he, she was, like, super important to him. And that doesn't affect me or make me feel insecure, despite the fact it's implied that they're kind of in a relationship in the first story. Right. But in this story is when she comes back and there is some tension. And I was kind of disappointed that I went that route. Yeah, especially since the author totally ignores the other two romantic interests that Cloud has in that game, which is Yuffie and Barrett. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Just not even mentioned in his possibilities, you know? And Reno. No. No, Reno was not a date option. I think you're forgetting that he is a bloodthirsty Yakuza member, which the author of this fan fiction might also be forgetting at this point. Exactly. Uh, Well, also, you cannot date him, so. Well, yes. You remember in the Golden Saucer? Yes, yeah. Barrett and Yuffie are date options. This is true. Yeah. Man. I mean, date date is a strong word for how to train, but like. (laughs) You can drag Barrett along on that. <laughs> hmm. If you're if you're just yeah, a total no, jerk to all the point. female characters, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Taking me back here. And uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the major kind of it's, threads it's of it. Oh, much sorry. better than that. The the date with Barrett and the Golden Saucer because he's super pissed off because you just went through Coral and like <laughs> people still hate yeah, him there. Yeah. So you get to the Golden Saucer and he's just. So angry the whole time you're on the date with him. <laughs> that was actually really funny. Anyway, yeah, it, it's a through line in this story. It's one of the main plot threads is this uh, romantic tension between the three of them. And I feel like in this story, like it, in the first one, I felt like it was clear that Cloud and Tifa were in a relationship. It didn't yes. feel that clear in this story to me. It felt like there was this thing where it's like, oh, you haven't like told Tifa how you feel or whatever. I don't know, maybe they're in a relationship and he's just, like, uncommunicative, which would not be a shock, but I don't know. Yeah, you know, I see relationships, like, played out like this in fiction about teenagers, which I don't think these characters are supposed to be teenagers. Is it one of those situations where they were aged up in the Western release and they were (laughs) just too young in the original? Because I would not be shocked about that either. 
Where it's, like, you know, implied that yeah. someone has feelings for the other person, but, like, everybody knows it, but, like, nobody says anything, but blah, 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 blah. But, like, literally Tifa and Cloud are living together. Like, right. they are clearly have, like, a solid adult thing. So it is weird how in this fic it kind of shifts to, like, oh, Tifa's saying, like, oh, but she probably had feelings for Aerith and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Yeah. But moving on, there is a through line to this plot other than Tifa and Cloud and Aerith having, like, a love triangle. Oh, wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. There was? <laughs> <laughs> we, even though we don't get a, like, emotional character response to Aerith coming back, it does give a solid paragraph to what she's been doing with her time, which is that she tried to go back to kind of like a... F- <laughs> okay, it says, After her resurrection, they had returned to Calm, the town, and Eris had wished at the time for nothing more than to return to the simple life of a flower girl she had led before their adventures started. Wait, wait, wait. Which... No one chooses flower girls. <laughs> no. That is not a... Yeah. That's a poverty level subsistence yes. thing. That is not a career yeah, that you enjoy. Which was like one of the whole points of the game was like... <laughs> I don't even need to say it. It was... Well, yeah. 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 The oppression of living under capitalist. Yes. Right. I just, I feel like our listeners are tired of me complaining about capitalism. So (laughs) moving on. Point being, yes. Anyway, the point is, in fact, she decided, oh, she wanted to learn a lot more about like the ancients and stuff. And so she went and like went to study and did a, did a semester at Cosmo Canyon exchange program or whatever for (laughs) learning about stuff. And, you know, that's where she's been. But she comes back to them and she says, Yuffie's missing. I got a message. Something weird's happening. Goto wants us all to come in and help out. Goto being Yuffie's dad, who is, um, I think, what's the term for the ruler of um, of Wutai? Would it be martial arts master? Just whoever's best uh, at martial arts rules. What do they? That's right. What do they call the the leader in the Naruto town? A uh, Hokage. Yeah, yeah, he's basically a Hokage. <laughs> he's <the> Hokage. <laughs> um. And so it's really just a, I said that the first fanfic felt like a ROM hack plot. This feels like a tabletop role-playing game plot where like, oh, it's been a year since the last adventure and now I need an excuse for all the characters to come back together. And so like, what have you been doing in your downtime? And everyone, you know, talks about what they've been doing in their downtime. And then it's like, great. So you all get a message about an adventure that you need to go have. And Yuffie's player is not at the table today, so... That's what it feels like. Because mm-hmm. pretty much everybody gathers up in Wutai. Yeah. But they have to fly there, though, because Sid has made a... Um, oh, yeah. A, a new flying machine. This is, like, kind of a big point. Like, for some reason, he dissembled his old... Uh, oh, what is it? The High Wind. The High Wind, yeah. It's for rocket parts. Yeah, yeah yes. It's mentioned that it's for rocket parts, which I like... If there was any reason that Sid would disassemble the Highwind, it would be to build a rocket ship. But really, I don't know that I quite buy this. In, well, in the, in the author knows, the author says, yes, like, yeah, exactly. I don't know why I had him disassemble the Highwind. That was a bad idea in retrospect. Yes. So I had him build a new one. <laughs> the Slipstream, which yeah. is it's a, good name. a great name. Yeah. I really like sure, it. Sure. But unfortunately, we get the description of it as, I think, just a black jet. And that's about it. So I was picturing I'm... the Blackbird from Claremont era X Men. That is mm-hmm. what I had yeah, in my mind. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean that seems maybe what I was picturing yeah, too. It's now a that bit, I think about it. Yes, it's a bit um, not quite Final Fantasy airship design, but right. I, I see why you went there, and I went somewhere similar. <laughs> 
it, it's Vincent, by the way, who's going to pick up Sid. And the other Sid news is that Shara has left him. So I cheered. <laughs> and Vincent has to drag this out of Sid. Like, clearly something's wrong. Like, and Sid is upset. But he's like, oh, who cares if, if she left uh-huh. me? No, 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 whatever. He's being like a cranky guy about it. Yes. And he is throughout the whole fanfic. It's not a good plot thread that mm-hmm. his relationship. He ne- He never grows to understand her. I'm not even sure she gets lines in this story. Nope. No. She doesn't appear in the story. No. Except, oh, at the very end. But anyway, we'll get there. I do like the line that Vincent's just sort of considering Sid after this revelation. Sid stood up and grabbed his backpack. Stop looking at me like that, he exclaimed. I'll tell her, eventually, tell her, like, that he misses her, right? Now let's get going. Whatever is going on in Wutai is probably more important than anything that's going on here. I'm not so sure, Vincent said. And it just made me laugh that, like, Vincent was like, no, I think your romantic troubles are, like, super important right now. And, <laughs> and probably you're just looking for an excuse to escape them, which mm-hmm. is totally true. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he does. He successfully flees his romantic troubles yeah. on a jet. He's, like, super emotionally <laughs> unavailable, and yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Final Fantasy VII Sid. No. No. He is not the best character. He does have some redeeming qualities, I would argue, yeah. but... They're not in how he deals with his relationships for the most part. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. So they pick up the people. At least they've got, you know, Tifa and Cloud and Eris and Vincent and... um, Red. Did I say Red? Sid. I don't think Barrett's there. Whatever. They meet up with Godo. Um, And Godo tells him the story, which is that... Some Wutai's materia have been going dead, like dull gray. And it isn't just Wutai. It happened at Icicle Inn before that. So it seems like it's kind of affecting all the northern regions, spreading south. So obviously they were were like, well, this is coming from the north. So he sent Yuffie to investigate, because if materia stopped working, that is clearly the best motivator possible for (laughs) Yuffie, I assume. And she hasn't come back. And so Goto's very concerned about this. And basically, he just deploys them. He's like, oh, yeah, everybody else is gathering at the gold saucer, so go pick them up the gold saucer and go check this out. They'll take that quest, because the DM doesn't have anything else planned tonight, so it's (laughs) really that or go home. But, I mean, also, they're very concerned for Yuffie. And I guess Materia. Yeah, this is a... You know, it's... a particularly, like, uh, RPG kind of moment. Like, I wasn't sure why should, we should be very invested at this point, but it did bring all the characters together in very rapid succession and give them a quest. Then we get this Tifa flashback to the destruction of Nibelheim, and I don't quite get why. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that doesn't... And her father's death, right? I guess... That happened at the same time, yeah. Yeah. He was one of the people who got killed by Sephiroth, if I recall correctly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's that yeah, that's kind of the benefit of her flashback, and I agree. I don't know why it's coming up right now. I mean, it's actually a very well-written The, the scene, scene is good. It's just yeah. like, I don't quite get how it hangs on the other threads that are going to be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever. They meet up with the other Avalanche members in the lobby of the Ghost Hotel. And I was like, oh, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about the existence of the Ghost Hotel until now. 
we still don't really get much description, but I could imagine it in my head again. Uh, you know, the constant themes. So Barrett's there. Their good friend, Kate Sith, who everyone calls Kate and knows as a robot, <laughs> is, is He's there. a robot. He's just a little cat robot riding a big Moogle robot. And whatever else is going on in his life is nobody's business. Apparently, yeah. Like, that is... You know what? It's so much, like, especially bizarre. Not to harp on this anymore, considering our previous episode, but, like, oh, my God. Everybody else gets character beats and character moments. And it's like, nope. Nobody cares. (laughs) Kate Sith? You're just a robot, friend. I mean... Kate Sith is very clearly just cool with all of this. Like, <laughs> he's pretty chill. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's good. Like, he's got his life where he's not being a robot that he probably has great adventures in and goes through emotional character development. Except, but no, right. this is his robot life. Right. <laughs> right. But that's the weird part is there's such a focus in these stories, especially on the characters' relationships with one another and that straight. Pardon, the strength there. And it's like, how can they even have a strong relationship with him if they don't even fucking know what he's doing in his life? Like, they don't even know who he is. They just, I mean, maybe ah. this is just that it's an identity thing where, like, he wants to live as a <laughs> cat riding a Moogle robot. And, like, but, maybe that's just his best self. But with, like, no, like, uh, history experience, right. like, emotional relationships, like... He's got, like, nothing here, you know? He's got, like, I got kind of a personality, but, like, no mm. character depth. <laughs> yeah, that's why I say wow. kind of. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I mean, certainly in the way he's portrayed here. It, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no. Well, also, he has character beats in Seven. Like, yes, he's, he's yeah. a person who has, like, yes. a, a motivation and guilt and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, and you it's, know? like, it's very important that he is someone that was working for Shinra and turns against them for the sake of the party and he right. had reasons for doing them. Just like there's complicated bits here. I still don't quite understand how he like goes to the bathroom. <laughs> he's operating this robot all the time. Like I don't know, but whatever. Like the robot, you know, they don't mention truly it. the important parts of this guy. <laughs> You'd just be like, hang on everybody, I need to stand still for a moment. Can you just like wait five minutes <laughs> while I stand here in this dungeon? I don't know. <laughs> Okay, the point well, is... Well, I'm sure he waits until a fight is complete to use the bathroom, just like yes. everybody else. <laughs> no, like, no, I'm not saying in the middle of a fight, just like... <laughs> oh, in the middle of a dungeon. Okay, sorry. I misread you. Okay. So everybody's gathered. You know, all the people go to call to save Yuffie. You know, uh, Barrett's there. Kate Sith is there. Rude is there. Elena's there. Uh, you know, Reno's there because he also hired the Turks. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we get into some kind of dubious interactions between the Turks and Avalanche. Yes. Some of it is fun. And some of it is just mostly like Elena and Barrett and but Elena on the one hand and Barrett and Tief on the other hand blaming each other for being mass murderers. Oh my gosh. More than once. Yeah. It's, like, so clear that the author really, really liked the Turks mm-hmm. and liked the protagonists and wanted to see them united in some way. And I'm not familiar with this from, like, you know, looking at fan art 
you know, when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Like, people wanted to see these characters interact with each other. People like the Well, parts, every time they do in the game, it's actually too. really like, fun. Yes. Right, yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, they're, like, they're certainly interesting characters. They are your quirky mini-boss squad of Final Fantasy VII. Right. Um, but, like... I feel like we're we're glossing over a little bit that they are that they spent the entirety of the game of Final Fantasy VII working for a company which was very clearly manifestly terrible. Oh yes, <laughs> like going to murder the entire planet. Most of their administrative team were cackling madmen. You know. Yeah. Like, yes. Oh yes. <laughs> and the author kind I mean, of falls yeah. into the same situation where they're like, "I like these characters as people," and kind of ignored. You know, well, uh, what was going on? You but know, uh, at the same time, they made an excuse for it. We talked about this in our last episode about this. They made an excuse for it, which is that they kind of situation. They put them situationally as like people for hire rather than being fully aligned with Shinra. Right. However, I don't know if that creates the excuse they were hoping for. No, because you know, regardless of the reason that they were working for Shinra, like it really just still sort of boils down to the same thing. They were still working for Shinra, this company that disappears towns off of the map Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because they don't like them. Collapses plates onto slums, yes. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. one too. (laughs) Well, I mean like that one, the Turks were directly responsible for. That's what Tifa keeps pulling out. And, you know, they try to give Elena the like, oh, well, you know, you bombed. Do you think about all the people? I had friends in like in that factory you bombed. It's like, well, yeah. And Tifa gets to like have angst over that. But, you know, there's some false equivalency there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I find that because that false equivalency isn't, isn't apparent. Like the, the author's apparent, like for, what we have of the plot. The author seems to think that those two things are just, you know, about the same, right? Uh, You know, planet killing and town disappearing versus civilian casualties. Blowing up the thing, killing the planet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a act that was like really potentially necessary at that point. You know, I actually didn't necessarily read that as the author finding equivalency there so much as like the Turks using that as an excuse to find equivalency, which I see. Elena specifically, but yes. El- yes, Elena. Um, who is the one who cares most about this. I, I do like this line. <laughs> Elena gets to shout at, at Reno for like, ah, we're working with these people. Like, I didn't know that. Like, how can you accept this job? He's like, that's the job. And she storms off. And then, you know, Reno and Rude are still at the bar. Reno, yeah. Reno looked at Rude for a moment. You didn't know we were going to be working with Cloud, he said finally. How come you didn't look surprised when we met them? Rude took a leisurely swig from his glass, then set it down. Nothing surprises me, he answered with a shrug. Yeah. I thought it was cute. Yes, well, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a very in-character thing for Rude. It's very, like, cool, swaggering character. Right. I appreciate that 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 they've kept his character intact and they did a very good job with that. And like the first story, we get some good lines in the dialogue, like, you know, peppered throughout, not for any specific character, just like there's good bits of dialogue. And I cut you off earlier, Tori, was there something else? No, I was going to say like, that's where I find the, um, the equivalency is like when you see, you know, kind of, conservative politicians talk about equivalency in their tactics 
versus the tactics of like more liberal parties. Like that's, I'd, you know, I'm not going to like dive too deep into the political side here, but like that's how it felt to me is like it was an over extrapolation um, that kind of came from the perspective. It's like, we're just doing, you know, like the same thing you guys did when you did this. And it's like, no, we did this for good and you guys did this for like totally shitty reasons. <laughs> but they're using that same tactic of justification that is like, oh, well, you know, it's basically the same. So I can, I, I kind of like how it read, because it read like kind of an argument from like a shitty person trying to justify their actions by like comparing people who are trying to liberate themselves from suffering to their actions of like doing something that was totally unjustified. And and I'm if that okay, makes sense. Yeah, I'm okay with the Turks trying to justify their actions. Any person no one like does things thinking that they're the mustache twirlingly evil villain of the mm-hmm, piece mm-hmm. but um like we don't get a good counter argument at least as far as i am concerned not a sufficiently good counter argument from the people in avalanche about how the things that they were doing were pretty well justified by you know the whole mm-hmm. planet murder angle right <laughs> But, like, you know, you t- you totally hear that shit. You know, in, like, a real-life argument. Like, people being like, oh, y'all, like, you know, tried to do this to support your platform. We tried to do that to support our platform. So I feel like it's relatable where they're coming from, despite the fact that it's totally wrong <laughs> where they're coming from. Speaking of where people are coming from, compared to the first story, this one is far more willing to give extensive characters thinking about their feelings or whatever. And so, like, around this time, we all, or, you know, in this kind of part of the story a little bit later, we have this whole thing about Reno thinking about the Turks. And it's like, are we kind of pathetic now? Just, like, taking orders from people we despise for the money? Like, what does being a Turk mean? But it's kind of, it doesn't, it falls a little flat because, like, He's like, I always wanted to be a Turk, looked up to it and like how far we've fallen or whatever. But it's like, what did what did you think the Turks stood for originally? Because that's not at all clear. And uh, it's especially unclear in this fanfic. When... Where it's like, aren't the Turks a mercenary band in this fanfic? Isn't that like kind of the idea that you've set up? Isn't that just what you do? I don't know. Yeah. But but there's there's scenes like that, at least, where the author's spending time exploring characters' inner thoughts instead of just going from plot action to plot action but speaking of plot action they all head to like icicle lodge and snowboard into the snowy wastes to explore it is the only way to get into yes. north crater at, at one point i think the turks or someone's like oh, we should have gotten skis instead because then at least we go cross country why do we do snowboards <laughs> This was kind of like super cute though like uh tifa's the best snowboarder mm-hmm. Um, well, Tifa is the best in her group, and Cloud is the best oh, yes, in his group. Yes. Well, those were the two people who got to play the game. But yes, yes, yes. That's, yes. that's, that's a golden saucer. And then there's a comment about Red riding his snowboard, and how no one has ever seen someone ride a snowboard sitting down. <laughs> yep. It's just so cute. It's like I did not expect Red to use a snowboard. Because wouldn't he just run down the hill on his, like, incredible fast four legs like he does in other parts of the story? Yes, which is something that sort of gets glossed over. Like, you know, the ending scene of Final Fantasy VII, which we touched on briefly, does sort of, like, show Red Thirteen jumping up this giant mountain. Yeah. Um, Well, at least the in Advent Children, you you get that. I think you do in the original as well, if I recall correctly. Yeah. 
But then, like, we have that scene in Wutai at the beginning where it is vitally important that they try to climb a sheer mountain face. They're like, Red 13's like, climbing is not my strong suit. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Now, they're sort of split up here. The, um, the Turk group is attacked by people wearing black uniforms with a red fist on them who use martial arts, like hand-to-hand combat. And they're kind of taken... They don't have material or anything and you know they're sort of overwhelmed except that like they get some firing support from the slipstream flying overhead uh that drives off these people and uh the other group finds the body of what's his name the fourth pagoda fight guy who um from wutai like one of the the martial arts peoples um he got he apparently had been sent with yuffie and like he's totally dead now Sorry. Oh, yeah. Anyone but who was what, fans uh, of that minor character. Yeah. Um, yeah, what is his name? Staniv. Staniv. Yes. Oh, yeah. That that name that fits in very well with the kind of vaguely East Asian aesthetic of Wutai. Staniv. <laughs> also, isn't this the moment where we get Red's kind of personal thing? Which like, one's that? Around now? Yes, it is around now. He's sniffing around the the rocks, and something compels him to start howling. Mm. And it's perceived by the others to be in a very mournful way. Mm -hmm. And he does it for a while. They're trying to get his attention, Mm -hmm. and they can't. And eventually he kind of snaps out of it, and he's like, I'm sorry, something overtook me. I I sense something. And and that's foreshadowing for something we're going to get towards the end. But it's, yeah, it was... A significant point, even at that point, to me, because I really didn't like how academic he was until now, and like, um, like not academic necessarily. I guess being academic was fine, but being emotionalist was mm-hmm. wasn't fine. Yeah. You know, he's he's a beast, and he should have bestial qualities, but he almost felt he's like, not a beast. Yeah, well, he's just quadrupedal. Yes. He's not a human. And it almost worked like the author, it felt like the author worked overtime to deny his bestial qualities by making him super, like, cold and academic. And I wanted to see that passion. But when he does experience that passion, he's like, that was weird. That was weird for me, you know? And I just, I didn't like that, especially because towards the end, there's a very real reason for it. That is a big part of who he is. And and I think we'll get to that. But my point is, is it, it just, it felt weird how they shifted the character around. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely agree with this. Um, and like the fact that um, Red 13 is the, the last of his race and this sort of animalistic um, intelligent species uh, is, you know, like, sort of vitally important to how his character is portrayed, you know, like how he is an outcast from, you know, human society just by nature of who he is and the species that he is and how he is, you know, more in touch with nature and the planet in some ways because of that. So trying to deny that part of his character seems sort of brutally false to me. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a good criticism of his portrayal, as we mentioned in the previous episode. But let's try to kind of push through this a little more in terms of plot. Yeah. 
So we do cut away briefly from the main characters to have like a yuffie escape attempt. She's being held by, you know, some people in a place. We don't really get the details from her perspective, but she fakes being sick and, you know, beats up a captor. And then she gets to be defeated by this like honorable older person who remains nameless at this point. Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of mystery at this point, I think. Yeah, the mystery is going to be pretty cleared up for us readers in about five seconds. But, you know, this older person who seems to be in charge of this facility is like, oh, well, I imagine you feel honor-bound to try to escape, but we're not going to let you escape. So just just so you know, that's not how he phrases it. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit more threatening about it. He's got the whole, um, we're going to let you live because we think we can keep you captive, but if you're too much trouble, mm-hmm. we might off you. Right. Sort of rhetoric going You're more useful to us dead than alive. <laughs> I mean, alive than dead at the moment. Right. And it's also worth noting that this is the same older, um, s- skilled martial artist that defeated her when she broke in at the beginning of the, the story arc. Right, which means, to some extent, this wasn't really a necessary scene. Yeah. And, I mean, it was... I mean, I guess it's nice to see Yuffie being a cool ninja. Even if she can't be allowed to win at this point in the story. Yeah. Well, I, it is it is better for her character because I feel like her character moment in the first story we read was mm. like not being willing to pass her ninja test, honestly, <laughs> being afraid of heights. Um, she gets a little bit more in this, but at the same time, she also is just kind of captured and then isn't really much in the story after that. Yeah. I guess it's not the best yuffie highlight now. But speaking of skilled martial artists, things up in the Arctic when they're exploring come to a head. It doesn't really matter how it happens, but they end up in a conflict again with these, you know, martial artist people who are around being antagonists that the Turks ran into before. Mm -hmm. Remember, and like they were saved by that strafing run. And there's a big fight scene. And going into this at this point, knowing that there were going to be a lot of martial artists running around, it's called the Red Fist. I was kind of expecting that, like, Tifa would get to be the best martial artist by a significant margin. And one would figure from her portrayal in Final Fantasy VII. In fact, from all of these characters' portrayal in Final right. Fantasy VII. That, that they, they are... would just be really, really good. But, right. But, I mean, th- th- but that would be, a, like, Tifa highlight in particular. Yeah, and, and I agree with this. That sounds about right. Uh, these are supposed to be the most skilled people on the planet. Tifa's the only <laughs> martial artist, so it stands to reason that she's the most skilled martial artist on the planet. They've gained so many levels, so much experience points. <laughs> yeah. I uh, mean, yeah, from a game standpoint, nothing's really going to stand in the way of a high-level Final Fantasy VII party, except, like, maybe some endgame bosses, even without any of their material like they are now. Well, sure. It's like, if you're talking about, like, even the canon weapons, it's like, oh, yeah, this is, like, you know, the ultimate projection of the planet's will and, like, you know, the planet's ability to engage in destruction to heal itself or protect itself. We can just beat it up. It's fine. (laughs) Ultimate weapon, not a big deal. Um, Anyway, what I'm getting at is that it is probably true that Tifa's the best martial artist in, like, these fight scenes, but it's not by a huge margin. It's not by a margin that really, like, matters. It's like, all of these people are kind of on that same, you know, scale of power. Mm-hmm. And so the fight scenes kind of go, it's very even. Like, surprisingly even, I would say. And, I mean, the, the main characters are also outnumbered, but, I don't know, just less ass-kicking than I was expecting. 
Yeah, and you know, they also have this compound party, too, of, like, them and the, the, Turks. the Turks. Yeah, you feel like there's a lot of people. It, it's actually hard to tell what the numbers are skewed towards, though. They are kind of up against this kind of tight army, so. I just feel yeah. like there's a little bit of narrative control here. No one's casting Knights of the Round in these fights. Well, if, they are without materia, but oh, I oh, understand your are. point. Of course they are. They are without <laughs> materia. And I've got to say, one thing... This fanfic is actually kind of cool, like its dedication towards having the things in the game be in the world, because people do use limit breaks. And I forget what fight it is, but at some point, Ares uses Grand Gospel and like, mm-hmm. you know, it fills Cloud's limit gauge and he gets to use one of his limits. And they don't, it's a little odd because they always name the materia. It's like, oh yeah, like we're using freaking Judgment Bolt, whatever. We've got the remove materia right here. But they don't name the limits. It's just like the characters doing cool things. And so it's like, oh, Ares, you know, channeling some sort of power from the planet and then like Cloud being filled with energy and cutting something like a million times in a row with like his enormous sword. And I I kind of like that, actually, because it sort of gets to emphasize the like coolness of the characters doing awesome fight things more than just like the characters exploiting a game mechanic. Yeah. I mean, and it also sort of feels like these are their... you know, semi-supernatural, but they're still sort of a manifestation of the character's skill. It's not materia. Yes. And that's clear, and that's explicit, and so, like, they can do these things. These are things they can do. It's kind of neat. This big fight against the Red Fist sort of comes to a pause, actually. It doesn't come to a conclusion, because their leader shows up, and it is the obvious person who it would be, because how many martial artists are there in Final Fantasy VII? Two. There's Tifa, and there's Zargon. <laughs> so obviously this old guy is Zargon. Well, I guess Yuffie is a martial artist, the ninjutsu is a martial art, right? Uh, yeah. Not... Uh, I, don't I know. mean, anyway, as far as being, people yeah. who... Fantasy, punch other people with their fists. Yeah, fantasy ninjutsu is a, its, its own different. thing. Yeah, I like, know. Yeah, good point. So yeah, so yeah, so there's Tifa's old master, who is also a father figure, mm-hmm. of course. Especially since her father got killed by yeah. Sephiroth. Yeah. A while ago. Which. Uh, yeah, we had a flashback to it. Yeah, which we we did. So this would be the first time Tifa's seeing this guy who was her father figure since her actual father was killed, right? No, she saw right she trained with yes. him after that. Oh, yeah. She trained with him after that. Um, okay. At some as far as the plot of Final Fantasy VII is concerned, at some undisclosed point after uh Zangan takes uh Tifa to Midgar, he then leaves to go wandering. Who knows how long he stayed with her after that. One would presume some time because she was fairly young at that point and recovering Mm -hmm. from almost dying to Sephiroth like everyone else in Nibelheim. (laughs) I I was saying Zargon, but it's it's Zangan. Who am I thinking of in a Final Fantasy character that sounds kind of like Zargon? I don't know. Some Uh, Final Final Fantasy VI Mash's rival? Was that guy named something like that? Uh, I think I, I know, I, I definitely recall a character named something like Zargon. Zargon. I'm trying to remember. Sounds like a space villain. Well, I mean, like, that's not unknown in Final Fantasy either. I know, but like, <laughs> I have an image of like someone in a, a helmet with red glowing eyes, like an evil space overlord. All right, well, this is not that space person. It is, <laughs> it's it's Zangan. Zangan. That's right. Yes. Yeah, you did say Zargon, huh? I didn't catch that. Yeah. Well, whatever. 
And so he sort of invites me, he's like, oh, well, sorry that we ended up in this conflict. It's all a total misunderstanding. Come to our secret Arctic base. Yeah. And, and, and the justification for that is we're just suspicious of any outsiders because we've been looted a lot. Like yeah, there's these come people like raiding us or raiding something. Us. And the other party members, like Cloud in particular, is like, you just attack anybody who comes by then because they might be trying to steal from you. Like, he's pretty irate about it, and some of the other party members are, but Tifa's kind of giving a little bit of a pass because, you know, she looks on Zangan as a father. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of an interesting, it's, there's some tension already building in the party with this. But. Yeah, but it feels like not quite enough tension. They do just sort of accept Zangan's explanation to some extent. I, I don't know. Yeah, I know what you mean. So like this, this secret Arctic base, what it is, is a research facility run by this guy named Quaze. And uh, Zangan is the head of security and he was hired to train the security team for this facility in badass super martial arts. And he must have gotten them up to like pretty high level, clearly, because they're, yeah. you know. They're well, they are training in North Crater, so. <laughs> that's right. Power just, level like all the time. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's some item that doubles your experience in seven, right? Maybe they've got some of those. I don't, I don't remember. I don't either. I know there's certainly ways to get a lot of experience even without any items, so mm-hmm. not sure it was strictly necessary. Yeah, they wouldn't use those items. They're too, you know... Well, Zangan would be too much of a purist to use any experience doubling items. That's not the way of the warrior. arts code, yeah. Uh, he, he is supposed to come off as kind of an upright, honorable guy. And, you know, they get, they get kind of their interviews... They're like, so Quaze, what are you doing up here? And how much does he tell them? He's sort of like, oh, very important experiments that are totally safe and not sinister. And they're like, uh, um, yeah. okay. Yeah, but it's a little more, uh, they're suspicious, but it's still a little more charming than that. Like right. you've got Tifa, you know, really trusting Zangan. So the party's kind of trusting Zangan, who's trusting Quaze. And Quaze is kind of welcoming and he's like, please eat with us, have drinks with us. And they, there's a little bit of charm there that they, though over their meal, they do talk about their suspicions. Like the first thing they do as soon as they're like out of this is talk about how suspicious the whole situation Mm -hmm. is. And I do like that. And this is not in Tifa's company because everybody else is like, Mm -hmm. well, Tifa believe like trusts Zangin to be an honorable upright dude. But you know, they, they, the rest of them gather together and Cloud's like, okay, so what are our thoughts? Well, let's see. Reno replied. We find Stanif dead in the middle of nowhere, killed by someone skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Then we run to these people, who just happen to be skilled in hand-to-hand combat, who try their damnedest to kill us until they find out that one of them is an old friend of Tifa. Doesn't take a genius to figure there must be some connection. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and what about Yuffie? It's like, well, they probably killed Yuffie too, more than likely. Yeah. But they don't have enough evidence to, like, act on it yet. No, by the but, way, but this, this is... I, I I can't believe that this is canon. This is smarter than Reno has ever been in canon. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, that this is, like, to me, the perspective of the Turks. You're right. It is smarter. But, like, because it's from these people that, like, the main party doesn't always trust, it's mm-hmm. almost like the reader is like, well, yeah, they're going to be suspicious. That's the sort of people they are. If so Reno you don't thinks really that's know. right, then it can't be right. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, even doubly so because of what Chris said. Yeah. Like, if, Reno's perspective can't be right, but anyway, it's a good build, I think, in that the fact that we have this perspective that seems logical, but we don't know whether to trust the source. Mm-hmm. 
but there's enough doubt that they kind of decide to just sort of hang out and investigate for a little while before they make any rash moves. Although it should be noted that they mostly just hang out. A little bit of investigation will eventually occur, though mostly on the part of the Turks and not the rest of the party, yeah. who should be very suspicious of authority figures, I would <laughs> like to mention once again. True. I, I guess I should also mention that Eris has gotten... Um, who's the psychic in Next Generation in Star Trek? In Next Gen? Yeah. Deanna Troy? Troy. Eris kind of has Deanna Troy powers at the moment, where she's <laughs> like, the planet senses danger. And they're like, okay. Any details? She's like, no. I don't know. If the... her, her details are like, whatever the danger is, it's coming from right here. So I, I guess that is actually a big deal. I would like to be clear that I don't think Deanna Troy has power to sense the feelings of planets. But, uh, you know, well, I mean, this planet is sentient, so right. yeah, I think it okay. probably falls so under. So she probably could, but it would be like one of those those episodes where she'd be like, I feel the feelings of the planet, and then it would overwhelm her mind because there would be mm. too many feelings, and she'd have a whole, like, psychic sickness, and then her mother would come on board and, like, teach her to be a better psychic. Anyway. At the very least, Ares is not overwhelmed by the feelings of the planet <laughs> at this time. She kind of is for a moment later on, but whatever. Right, so investigation. Um, this... This somewhat stable state of affairs does not last all that long. Mm -mm. But, you know, before we do that, there's one other kind of uh, sub, sub, no, it's not a subplot. There's kind something else plot. going on, Yeah, which is that every single member of the Turks has feelings for someone in the Clouds party. Wait, who's Reno into? Reno is into Tifa, right? No. No, uh, Rude is Rude's into, Tifa. into Tifa. Reno is Reno into someone? No. Reno's sort of into anyone that he could yeah, get with. Yeah. He's just really scummy, but there we go. That's in character. He, he, he does mention that at one point. I think he's talking to Rude and, he, and like yeah, yeah, Rude is like, "Oh yeah, I'm into Tifa." Like, and you know, what about you? And Reno's like, "Ah, oh, pretty much anyone who yeah, would, who yeah. would like get with me." They have drinks, so yeah, like uh so Rude's into Tifa and um Elena. Uh, Elena is into... Elena bonds with Vincent, who is, Vincent, at the very least, right. an ex-Turk, which I think gives him points in Elena's book, I yeah, guess. Yeah, they actually have a moment in the snow, I think it's later than this, where they hold each other for warmth. Yeah, that's later. It's very sweet, actually. Yeah. But that's towards the end. And then, um, who is into Aerith? Uh, nobody. It's Sang, <laughs> who is dead. No, somebody was into Aerith. Sang. What? Never mind. I don't think anyone in this fanfic. Totally someone in this fanfic. Mm. All right, I'll find it. But anyway, Kate's point in. being, <laughs> point being that it's kind Sounds of funny. Right. They have a lot of moments in this where they're in bars talking to each other, and like sometimes they'll just be the Turks, but then sometimes they'll be like, I think it's funny because they're always trying to like get with somebody that they clearly like might not get with, like couldn't get with, or like it's just this like cross culture thing where their Turks are coming together with your heroes. Well, and it's really funny how they're romantically interested in them. Yeah, it is funny. And I like that it's like, it's kind of a range of stuff wherein like Elena and Vincent get to have like genuine emotional moments and kind of bond. Rude just has a crush on Tifa and like tries to take opportunities to talk to her and that's it. Yeah. And like, obviously nothing comes of it. And I don't know, the author doesn't try to force anything there or, or whatever. No, and that's a good point too, is like, there is kind of something with Elena and Vincent, but it's like... It could be whatever, and it's fine. But yeah, there's... Tifa's, no one's getting engaged at the yeah, end of this fanfic no. or anything like that. It's kind of normal human stuff, but in a funny way where it helps them bond as a team in a certain way that they find elements to like about each other. 
And I get that, and I think that that is a good way to go with this, but I think we are also sort of diverging from what the Turks are like in Final Fantasy VII, wherein they are very much willing to do anything to help a corporation, which is, again, I would like to remind everyone, literally killing a planet. That's No, this is an excellent point, because what this fanfic does is it tries to make them likable and personable characters, while still making them... It almost makes them more like anti-heroes than actual villains. Oh, for sure. Where they're kind of just like bad boys and girls, (laughs) rather than being, like you said, Chris, kind of the evil people they actually are. And I think this is common amongst fans... They want to see those characters uh, be likable. Well, but... it calls me back to Draco Dormian's, remember? Yeah. Where Draco was a main character in that. And in order to make him a protagonist, the author just sort of completely ignored the bigotry, which is a defining right. character trait of Draco in the source material. Right. And the author was just like, we're just not going to have that be a part of his character. And then everything's fine, right? They and just, it's like, yeah, yeah that it's, more, it's a lot more fine now, but you kind of had to make a leap to get there. Yeah, I think that's actually really common in fandom. But what I would like to see is this is after the events of Final Fantasy VII. These characters are put in a situation where they can have a redemption arc and change their philosophy and demonstrate that they, like, acknowledge their mistakes and demonstrate a change in philosophy. And Mm. instead of doing that, they are kind of, they're still just working for money again like they're still just tired and they don't really show any real change yeah and they still seem to be professing the same philosophies that they did in final Mm -hmm. fantasy 7 where they're still calling everyone in the final fantasy 7 crew in avalanche uh, murderers even though they've now saved the planet from sephiroth and Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. like they have some justifications for that there were some civilian casualties in the things that avalanche did but they did also save the planet. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I feel like some self-reflection on the part of the Turks, yeah, I'm with you there, well, should you ne- be required. There needs to be a stretch to make it work the other direction, too, because there's a moment where the author acknowledges from Eris. It's like, hey, you Turks, uh, you killed my mom. Yeah. But I'm just going to put that behind me. Yeah. Like, and I was like, oh, is that is that okay with you, Eris? Like, yeah, nah. are, you, are you cool with that? Mm-hmm. And it's the fanfic's not interested in exploring that. The fanfic author is interested in having the two groups together so the characters can bounce off each other in a somewhat less heavy way. Yeah, this is true. I think the conclusion we've come to is that, yeah, the character work that it would take for these groups to ever be friends, if that mm-hmm. was even possible, considering what they've gone through <laughs> against each other, was too much for the author to tackle. For this. So, the, yeah, it, they went the way of Draco Dorbians, which right. was, I'm going to ignore the shitty parts of these people, basically. Or at least largely. Or, or the, at least the conflict between the two groups, for the most part. I mean, that conflict's not ignored. It's just not... Mm, it's it's not just serious. not played as, as serious as it possibly should have been. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand it. Like, you can't... There's certain things you want to do. You don't want to have to do all the things. I, I mm-hmm. get it. But it does mean that it does ring a little bit, perhaps, non-canon mm-hmm. characterization. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to divert us too much, but I felt like they did a good job portraying the Turks in Advent Children, where they had them, like we sort of mentioned earlier, what they needed to do was 
be very apologetic for the way that they acted mm. and trying to do everything in their power to actually help. Right. And they came off as legitimate enough side characters with all of those addendums and sort of barely interacting with the main cast because the main cast is still sort of pissed at them. You're right. Yeah, but this author did not have access to Advent Children. No. Alas. Not in the slightest. This was their way to do it, I guess. And I I think there's a large part of the fandom that would have done exactly the same. Um, Because there's a large part of the fandom that really liked the Turks. Yeah, I get it. So They have fun moments, too. Yeah, they their banter with the party is sort of clever and you know, well put together and mm-hmm. smile worthy. But just because they're sort of entertaining people doesn't mean that they have good philosophies. <laughs> and no. I think we are forgetting that those two things are not the same. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably pretty true. But so that, you know, nothing, at least, you know, what happens is nothing much comes of the romances between them, except for maybe some allusion to Vincent and Elena. Well, but it is a strong part of the fanfic that kind of helps that there is trust between them that kind of helps the suspicions that like Reno has become, you know, more and more fruitful for the rest of the team. And the suspicions of the Turks are what drives the next stage forward because they just kind of take it upon themselves to do some, you know, spying around. And, um, and I, I don't know, they like, they try to sneak into this clearly heavily guarded tower area. It involves Elena trying to, like, you know, seduce, distract a guard. Mm-hmm. I guess there was a cute moment where, like, um, you know, rude as Elena's going up. It's like, what if the guy's gay? And mm-hmm. saying it's like, then it's your turn. And Even oh, yeah. better than that, it's the uh, sort of... Uh, Elena dresses up in one of like Tifa's very skimpy oh, right, outfits, right. and they then Rude's yeah, Rude's yeah. idea is you know okay, then we dress up Reno in that outfit. Oh, yeah. I think it would be oh, that's how it went, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, I just like that in terms of like this using sexual whatever tactics is just one hundred percent a tool. They'll use whatever tool, whatever. Yeah, and it can be funny, but whatever. Yeah. and basically they find Yuffie, they break her out, and. You know, clearly, like, that creates a huge shitstorm in the facility and, like, breaks any chance they would have had of, like, you know, investigating more calmly or uh, or subtly. Uh, quick question. At this point, has Quays talked about his work yet to them? I forget how much we've learned about the work. What does he say? He's, well, he's doing something about, oh, yeah, <laughs> taking a materia power and, like, expanding its influence, its area of effect, like to multiple factors, you know, higher. And so his examples are like, oh, what if you could just, like, freeze out a forest fire with an ice material, like an entire forest fire, mm-hmm. or cast cure on an entire city? Yeah. And they're like, is this safe? He's like, oh, it's completely 100% safe. Definitely, yes. <laughs> but in order to do this, he is drawing power from materia around in the in the world, basically. Yeah. I mean, he's saying, and... like, that won't be a problem forever. That's... Kind of right. like the, the research. Their power will be restored. However, a good point that I think Cloud, Cloud makes is that he's taking power from materia, like from unsuspecting people who need the power of their materia. And this is, you know, like is something that's happening without people knowing that it's happening, but it's happening for this research to theoretically build like 
the cure to cancer, basically, is what he markets it as, right. you know, metaphorically speaking, is this is going to be this amazing thing that helps the world. But, you know, who cares if people's materia power are drained? Because when's the last time we saw anyone other than the protagonists use a materia? Ever. Well, Cloud makes it seem like people are using it all over. Well, that makes to, more sense like, because... live yeah. their daily lives, you, right? To you, heal people, to, like, <laughs> farm, to, you know... I, I think know. that there's sort of an implication that materia does get used in the world outside there of the is. party members. Because even just like in Sector 7, like at the very start of the game, it's like, oh yeah, that's the materia store. Like they have yes. a little like yeah. crappy selection of, of materia, but like you go there to buy mm-hmm. your materia. And it's not even like your normal Final Fantasy game where it's like, this is the magic shop. You need to be a wizard to use <laughs> this. It's like, no, you just need to like have a piece of clothing that has an indentation in it, I guess. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Works about right, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a special indentation. It has to be right. the right size and shape to fit the material. And that is clearly the only important part, yeah. which is why we can have eight-slot material <laughs> double-linked <laughs> items at level one just by using a drill press, right? Yes. Hey, don't definitely. get me wrong. If it's even a millimeter off of the right size, shape and size, you're not getting that material to work. I'm just picturing, like... You know, a work shirt, like a button-up shirt, except instead of a breast pocket, it's got this, like, <laughs> I don't know, bulky materia slot. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that that's, like, a main plot propellant. But another subplot that's going on is Cloud being very, like, all up on spending time with Eris, and they, like, have a nice moment out in the moonlight and like a conversation it's not even necessarily romantic but it's not not romantic it's not clear where the author's going with this yeah there's this whole thing that's going on which in the first fanfic i think it's very sweet that cloud wants to resurrect Aerith, and at no point is tifa like jealous of that no, she's concerned over his mental stability right. with good reason. And I but think she's we mentioned that. But... 100% on board with resurrecting Eris if they have any chance to. Yeah. Up to and including being willing to sacrifice herself to do it. So. Right. Yeah. And because she recognizes that Cloud and Aerith have such a close relationship, and it's they're, they're all in a close friendship. However, this is the point where the reality of Aerith being here becomes something that starts to affect Tifa too Mm -hmm. because now you kind of get this like heteromonogamous who are you going to (laughs) choose and it's unclear it's unclear she also walks in at this very contrived moment where like there's been a big earthquake suddenly for reasons we'll explain and Aries is like oh the planet and Cloud has to like you know hold her close because she's like suffering from planet aftershocks or whatever and Tifa well, walks in at the Also, there was, moment. like, an earthquake, and people were literally falling over and helping okay, yeah, one another up. I guess that, too. <laughs> um, but Eris takes it the wrong way. Tifa t- takes t- it the wrong Tifa. way. Yeah. Yes, not Eris, Tifa. And, yeah, to be fair, she's insecure already over this thing, but um, her former mentor, Zangin, Zargin, Zangin, has previously, had previously talked to her and been like, why don't you come work for me? Because, like... You're my best student. I'd love to have you here. And, like, I want somebody to, like, succeed me once I'm gone because, like, I'm an old gray dude. And even though as a martial artist that only makes me more badass until I keel over, (laughs) I'm still not going to live forever. That's exactly how martial arts work. Right, Tori? The older you you are, the more badass you are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Can also attest to this. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know your martial arts background. 
it's it, pretty extensive. Like, it's the same. <laughs> we're, right. we're the same. We're the same. <laughs> we're the same. The same person, basically. Eh, maybe two halves of the same coin. Two sides. Is that how two that works? Two halves of the same coin. <laughs> we're a coin split in half. I like it to right, four I'm sides. Done. Uh, I'm done. Actually, technically. <laughs> count me out. Put me. I'm out, coach. Four sides per coin if you count the edge. Uh, who counts the edge? <laughs> <laughs> the point is that seeing this Aries incident drives Tifa back into, like, I'm going to quit Avalanche and be a Zangin disciple and join the Red Fist. And Heavy like, sigh. It, oh, it seems pretty contrived. Now, to be fair, uh, her current career as bartender also seemed a little bit off. So mm-hmm. maybe she is looking for a change of pace in her life from, like, literally what she was doing before becoming a world-saving hero. But uh, I'm not sure that really helps the whole arc. I think that, to me, I don't know. What I see here is... I, I do wish it had been explored a little bit more, but, like, Tifa's a young person who has gone through a lot of changes, and seeing Zangin again, I think, was really affecting for her. And having been a young person going through a lot of transitions, you know, and, and it's sometimes you feel a pull towards a change, but you sometimes are pulled in many different directions. And I, I can see how, for her, this was, like, somebody she trusts coming to her and saying i have this position for you here's a role you can fill and being her being like this is it like this is what's calling to me however does the author do the work to like explain that that's what something she would want not necessarily yeah yeah i don't think that's how it's really set up i think a lo- it's a lot more pinned on the idea that tifa's doing it because Cloud and Aerith seem like they're going to be together and happy, and that just boggles my mind because it is saying that the reason that Tifa was with Avalanche in the first place isn't just because she loves Cloud, which is already a stretch, but that she, it it's only okay that she's with Avalanche if she can be with Cloud, mm-hmm. and that just bothers me immensely oh it's a really good point like but what is avalanche avalanche isn't really doing anything right now well you would say that but twice this is the second time Uh, in the series that avalanche has been called back together to go do awesome stuff but i guess maybe she doesn't anticipate this to keep happening that's true avalanche is not like an active group at the time and i mean i don't know it's getting pretty active at this point they did just get called in by the head of a country. That's true. But no, I, but I possibly don't. the most powerful country in the world at this point yeah. as well. <laughs> but I do think that I don't want to forget that point. That's a really excellent point. That this is really diminishing to her character. That the fact that she might not get with Cloud would cause her to go a completely away from her friends and do something completely different. Because that is the motivation that the author gives her. Is like jealousy and feeling like she doesn't even if she does have feelings for cloud she doesn't even confront him on them she's just like no. oh he might like somebody and so i'm gonna leave and this whole this is kind of what i want to say earlier like this whole friendship that seems so strong in the first fanfic is just totally broken in this by tifa being like oh well if he loves someone else more than me then i'm just gonna dip like, yeah. you're yes. still friends, y'all. Like, ugh. Now, 
I'd, I'd like to read this part. It, blame is put on Cloud for not being kind of communicative and um, thankful to Tifa for all the stuff that she does for him. And I think that's fair because he definitely isn't and he's not a great communicator and he's probably not a great communicator in this relationship. Here's Barrett kind of chewing him out for it. Um, Cloud's like, if you were so concerned about her leaving, why didn't you say something? And he's like, she didn't want to hear it from me, fool. Barrett, calm down, Cloud said, reaching out and carefully pushing his arm aside, because he was waving his gun arm in Cloud's face. <laughs> I'm sure she'll come to her senses if we just give her a little time. Time, Barrett snorted dismissively. You don't got no more time. She stood by you all this time, and what has it gotten her? Nothing. When we all thought you were a nutcase with all that was happening with Sephiroth, who was the one who supported you? When you were almost dead in Medeal, who was the one who sat by your bed and didn't leave your side for more than a minute? Who was the one who helped pull you back together in the live stream? She said all that for you, and did you ever thank her? Even ever even thank her for it? Barrett glared at him. She's joining Zangin because I didn't thank her for sitting by my bed, Cloud said. Barrett threw his arms in the air. You're dumb as a post, he exclaimed. I give up. I don't know what she sees in you. I guess I'll just have to talk her out of it myself. And he strides out. And here's what... That's kind of also an example where in the search for Eris, the first fanfic in this story, I just kind of assumed that Cloud and Tifa were a couple. But I feel like they're not necessarily presented as one in this. No. At all. It, it seems like that's still up in the air. They just, like, live near or with each other and work together and have stayed together for the last few years since Avalanche, but they're not, like, a couple. I It feels a little bit surprising. Well, I think there's two possibilities. One is that, like, they've just developed such a strong relationship over time and, like, this friendship that they've been living together, they've been doing the, all these domestic things together, that, but neither one of them ever was like, hey, this should be a romantic thing because mm. they were just happy doing that. But the idea that something might break up that partnership makes Tifa upset. The other possibility is that they are a couple and Tifa's just heckin' insecure about them remaining a couple because for realistic reasons, because she never expected Aerith to come back from the dead. And this is kind of a big kind no, of You blow, don't usually right? expect your partner's ex to come back from exactly, the dead. Yeah. And be, I mean, ex is a strong word, but yeah. um, I don't know who he went on that gold saucer date with in this canon, you know? Clearly point. Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He and Barrett seem to be have a strong bond in this. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean... You mean slightly more pissed at one another, which is sort of how that ends in the... <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does the yuffie one go? I don't really remember. Oh God, I don't, I don't either. I looked up the Barrett one. I don't think I ever actually got it because it's hard to actually get. You have to choose everything right. Yeah, you have to go into your playthrough of Final Fantasy VII <laughs> intending to do it, and just not like I think you can't have Tifa or Eris in your party anytime you can choose because you that makes them like you more, and yeah. you don't want anyone yes, to like yeah. you if if you do certain <laughs> things in combat. I like. I, I know in 10, it's like you get relationship points by if you heal one another and mm. that sort of thing. I think it's the same in 7. And um, I think you can't recruit Yuffie either. Oh, my god. Which is probably why I never got it, because I recruited Yuffie immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, good. yeah, of course you do. Right. Yeah, who wouldn't? Someone who wants to keep their material. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite thing about Yuffie, is that that whole side plot, which is just infuriating when, like, it, it sprung on you, 
it, you just don't have to do it. If you just don't, like, no one steals your materia if you don't invite her into the party. Like, you just don't have to go through with that. You're taking that aggravation upon yourself by recruiting Yuffie, hmm. which makes her the best optional character, as opposed to just being, like, all <laughs> upside. That's a good point. And, you know, I think the author of this fanfic does a good job making Yuffie kind of a source of aggravation um, for the party every in, a, in both fanfics we read. And this one, it's more like she gets kidnapped. That's not really her fault. But still, it's like this: everything that happens to them happens because they're looking for her. I, I do like, yes, yeah, switching back over to plots. After all this Tifa thing happens, that's when the Turks manage to free Yuffie. And like, you know, they, but they fail at the extraction being secret. They have to fight their way out. And Yuffie gets several snide remarks about how bad a job they're doing at rescuing her. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and it we, fits with how pretty clever the witty banter goes in this, this fan fiction. Yeah. It, I, I like how well-written that is. It's definitely, if you want to read this fan fiction, it's definitely one of the better qualities. It's entertaining for sure. And so the characters who are more quippy usually come out pretty well and entertaining i would say in both of these stories mm-hmm. which means the turks and yuffie among other people <laughs> yes yeah which i guess lends their like ability despite like you know not necessarily being good people in the case of the turks and possibly in the case of yuffie she it's not she does just kind of steal your shit all the time <laughs> Uh, she doesn't okay. steal your stuff all the time. Yeah. Just the ones. So, as far as the canon of Final Fantasy VII is concerned, I, I mentioned this uh, in the, the previous episode, but she does sort of do that out of very desperate yeah. circumstances, and she doesn't think she can totally trust your party. Mm-hmm. And it makes some amount of sense, even if it is really a dick move. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point. She's a lot more likable than the Turks. Did That's you know? Reals. Did you know that if you have enough materia, like enough individual materia, Yuffie does not take it all. Yes, she, I think, mm. only steals a hundred of them. hundred, like yeah. she just can't carry really? it all. I guess. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and so, yeah, because she can carry a hundred of them, no problem. Well, I well, mean, she's got like a backpack, and it's only got a certain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you can end up taking materia into that whole sequence if you just make sure you've got enough of it and, like, the stuff at the back of your inventory is, like, it remains. Yep. Oh, I did that okay. by accident going into that because I just had way too many materia. So, so I ended up with, like, a fire and a lightning materia mm-hmm. and that was about it. Oh, that's better than nothing. <laughs> oh, so she only steals, like, up to a certain amount of them, right. basically. Okay, got it. I was, like, thinking for a second that she didn't steal them at all if you had too many, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, too much effort. (laughs) That looks like too many materia. I get it now. So the Turks and Yuffie are overwhelmed, and um, it's it's nice that the rest of the party's pretty much, like, beaten and overwhelmed, but because they're mostly taken off guard. It's very... uh, executive order whatever mm-hmm. from star wars episode three you've got these various scenes of like red hand people kind of getting the drop in various ways on you know party members yeah and subduing them well and to be fair they're yeah. very very skilled because they've been trained by zangan yeah, that's all it takes like yeah i guess i know yes. it doesn't make a lot of sense it's i mean well, like gotta, these uh, these people have been saying this whole time about how suspicious the scenario is, and then they just let themselves get ambushed? Yeah, they do. Uh, okay. Mostly. Like, Eris gets some sort of planet warning and gets to try to make a break from it, but it doesn't work. And so everyone gets rounded up, 
And basically they're dropped in this like freezing canyon because Zangin's like, look, I don't want to like actively kill you, but I, you can't interfere with these plans that are coming to fruition over here. So I'm just going to let you die of the cold or whatever. Yeah, and because if, if they're all suspicious. If so. you're still alive, I'll come back later. And then when <laughs> Tifa comes around, she's like, where'd all my friends go? Zangin's like, they went to investigate those raiders we talked about earlier who have been hitting the, you know, our facility because they thought maybe they had Yuffie, which, you know, was a theory that he had put forth. And she was like, without even saying goodbye, he was like, yes. Well, didn't he say, and like... Tifa buys this. She yeah. kind of buys it. She's like, oh. She buys it enough. What no, jerks. she she really does. Doesn't he say something like, they just left and they're not coming back for you, basically? Yeah. Or like, and she was like, oh, maybe they're hurt or something. You know, her being insecure over her relationship with Cloud, especially if Cloud is a terrible communicator, that's which one... Which is canon, which is so fine. there you go. That's one thing. <laughs> Barrett not saying goodbye? Yeah. Pretty unbelievable. No. How any is... of the any any of them, including Cloud, not saying goodbye is pretty unbelievable. This right. just paints Tifa as like amazingly insecure, which like I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna criticize her if she is, but it's not developed that that's who she is as a character. Like, she just accepts that her friends would abandon her because Zangan says so. Which I think in part is supposed to be because she trusts him so much as this father figure. Right. It's That's really helped, played up. Yeah. Who helped raise her. But it just, considering the bond she has with these people, it's like, you know, even for me, I'm, you know, I can be a very insecure person. But like, if one of my friends was going to be like, I'm never going to see you again. Bye forever. I'd be like, I need to know why. Mm-hmm. I need to know if I can fix this. Like, I'm not just letting you walk away from me. Our relationship is too important to me. If you give me good enough reason, fine. But she just lets it go. Like, also, they took all the materia. Yeah. And, and like, Zagan really makes it sound like they're not coming back. They may or may not come back. You know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and she's distraught. It just doesn't feel right. Well, everyone else is dumped in a freezing canyon, and that's where you get, like, the scene with Elena and Vincent, like, getting mm-hmm. to bond a little bit more and huddle together and for huddle, warmth. Yeah. Honestly, everyone should be huddling together for warmth, because that is what you do when you are freezing to death in, like, a, no, a place. Right. I'm sorry, you have to be romantically interested in someone to huddle together with them you are for literally warmth dying. when you're freezing to death. <laughs> uh, yeah. But only whatever. they get to do that. And like, okay, they do give a little bit of justification for this because uh, Elena is still in the skimpy outfit that she was wearing mm-hmm. for her disguise, so she is freezing to death faster than everyone else. But still, but still, he like uh, they should all. Be, I mean, she'd get even warmer if everyone else was huddled with her. Yes. Too, yes. By yeah. the way, they would all get warmer. Barrett in the middle, everybody else all like <laughs> kind of piled around. Uh, Kate Sith, you're a blanket. <laughs> I don't know. Is it Kate Sith made entirely of metal? There's got to be fur on the outside, right? Yeah, squishy monk yeah. stuff. Oh, so you know what? We skin Kate Sith. <laughs> <laughs> Just take a sword or a knife, like, remove the exterior. You're a robot. You're fine. You're the only one who's going to be fine because your physical body, like, your meat body is, like, in some, I don't know, cozy, like capsule hotel somewhere i don't know even how he does that honestly that's not a bad plan but when you put it as <laughs> it makes it quite less appealing I, I tend to operate by you know D party logic where like the players will do the most like efficient brutal thing like direct point a to point b problem solving that you possibly can at any juncture hmm 
Um, But actually what they do is they send, like, Reno and Cloud out to, like, go, maybe they can get to Icicle Lodge, maybe they can get help, like, whatever. It's better than everyone staying here and freezing. So they just go out there to freeze. Yep. And um, what they come back with is these, like, rebel people who've been raiding the facility who basically know what's going on. It's like, I forget her name, like, the leader of these... That's because it is spelled two very distinct ways throughout this oh whole fan gosh. fiction. What are those two ways? I think it is Renata and Renanta, if I recall yeah, correctly. No, that no, might not be correct. But. The way my ear-getter pronounced it at any given point was Renata and Renanda. But I think it was Renata and Renanda. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Okay, well, she gets to come back and save them from freezing to death and also info dump about what's going on actually in that facility, Mm -hmm. which is that what's-his-name scientist dude is, in fact, gathering materia energy to, like, do big old materia effects. What he's using that for is to send Ultimas down into the planet core Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, huge super Ultimas or whatever. And the point of that is to hurt the planet. What's the point of hurting the planet? Obviously to force the planet to create a weapon. And so far this all, like, that's... That hangs together. Mm-hmm. Like, if you actively start attacking the planet in Final Fantasy VII, eventually it's going to cough up a weapon at you. Mm-hmm. But then the the hand-wavy part to me feels like he's got a, he thinks he's got means to control a weapon. How? I don't know. Somehow with it, the well, super material. It, it, it is the super material he has, right? It's like, it's all the colors. It's like the magic color and the enhancement color and the action color. So I guess if you put it into a slot, it's going to, like totally increase your stats and give you a new command that casts magic and affect the other materia in the accompanying slot or whatever. It's a super materia. He can use it to control a weapon. It's fine. Uh, At least he thinks he can. And you know what? And that's what's causing these earthquakes that they're feeling and the planet planet pain, phantom planet pain that Ares is feeling. That's the deal. And basically, like, it's about to come to fruition at about this time. So what do they do? They go back to the airship? Do they manage to get back to the airship? Is that what they do? I think that they, I, the the strategy is that they split up from Renata or Renanda's oh, base, yeah, whoever. Do. Right. Yeah. And some of the people go back to the slipstream in order to try to hold off the weapon, if at all possible. Yes. And then everyone else goes back to the fortress where Quaze is in order to try to stop him yeah. and the materia. That's right. That on that end. Now the weapon is indeed produced at about this time. Uh, Quaze can indeed control it, and he does send it towards Junon, I think. Uh, Rocket Town, Ro- actually. Rocket, ta- Rocket Town, it of course. It is important because it Sid matters to a... Sid. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that person I was terrible to, but I guess I care about is there. Yeah. Uh, as, as well as everything else but that I, I care about in the world. Guess so. I want to marry or something. I never mind. Uh, we'll guess. get there. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, also around the same time, Tifa realizes the truth. Yes, and so out of all of the out-of-character actions and suspicious things that could have led her to be like, something's really fishy and I don't believe my mentor about this, what is the one just unbelievable out-of-character thing here? It is that Kate Sith left behind his fortune telling cards. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Yep. And Tifa's like, he would never leave these in a thousand years. He's, he's all is... about the fortune telling. And I, I was like, wait, wait, wait. No, he's, <laughs> he's not all about the fortune telling. That was a ruse. That was a personality that he was putting on for like his weirdo, like 
robot personality <laughs> thing. In fact, I cannot believe that he cares about fortune telling in the slightest. <laughs> Apparently he does, though. In this continuity, like, Tifa is aware that this is his, like, number one passion. And she admits I that guess. he's not good at it, but that he's very passionate at it. I don't... I don't know. I don't even remember... Yeah, okay. Yeah, she says some stuff about it to, like, kind of convince the reader that she understands that he's very passionate about it. She knows him well enough. But nonetheless, I, I do think it's implied, even though, that, that like, all of these things are coming together because, like, the reader knows all of these suspicious qualities that mm-hmm. Tifa should be picking up That's on. That's just the last straw, I guess. Yeah, it, I think it's implied. I just don't think it's stated. Like, I, I mean, I guess that might be a stretch, but... It's like, come on, Tifa, come on. Now, as an aside, I remember the fortune-telling thing where he gives you those fortune cards when you first meet him in the Golden Saucer. And I had always... This is not borne out by the animation now that I think about it. I just always assumed that a card was being ejected out of the Moogle's mouth. I thought that, like, he did that little dance, like, back and forth. He's like, doot, 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 doot. And it's just like... Wow, like a little printer <laughs> producing a card. That is definitely what I pictured every time in that scene. Not the the cat actually having a deck of cards in his hand. <laughs> that is amazing, and I like that better. That's, that's yeah. my headcanon for no, sure. That's great. I mean, because of course he could. He just print up a card for you. I mean, I guess. <laughs> although, you're not. I mean, they're all. The, also, the the fortunes you get from him are all like sort of very vague and like you know they're they're fortune teller fortunes where they're like this sort of uh, nonsense that he kind of halfway justifies to you he's like oh this clearly means i need to go with you and they're like i guess he's like yeah definitely i'm going with you (laughs) um anyway i guess on the one hand you're not explicitly supposed to know that he's a robot at that point but if he's not a robot what the hell (laughs) there are a lot of weird things in the world of final fantasy 7 I guess. Ours is not to question why. <laughs> Whatever. Yes. Anyway. Perhaps uh, we should take on the same ideology for this fanfic. <laughs> it, it just means uh, that Tifa... About that. <laughs> it just means that Tifa gets to turn against Sankin and be like, I think you've been like lying to me about stuff. And he gets to be like, oh yeah, I, I've been lying to you about stuff. And like, I actually dumped your friends into a frozen canyon. And, but I hope you don't hold it against me. She yeah. holds it against him. Yeah. yeah. Well... Surprise. She was like, I, I thought I could trust you and that you were an honorable guy. And he was like, I, I, he... I've changed and I've got my reasons. And I guess we'll get to those reasons in a moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't reveal it right away. Yeah. So those, the fight against weapon, it's an airship fight. It's, it's okay. It's very strange because mm-hmm. uh, it is very much like a dog fight. Right. Well, I mean, how, what, that's all you could do. If you've got an airship and a weapon, there's no other way you can do that fight scene. I, I suppose. We've just sort of been led to believe that that is not really an effective way to fight weapons by the plot of Final Fantasy VII. Right. Wherein you just sort of get out of your airship and then punch them to death. <laughs> yeah. Because that, I mean, we've reached the point at which your weapons are just stronger than anything that you can equip onto an airship. Right. I mean, definitely just want to beat them up with an umbrella. <laughs> Sorry. You don't have a character who can use an umbrella at that point in the game. Just beat him up with, like, a broom and, I don't know, what have you got? Clearly microphones and combs. (laughs) Punching (laughs) glove. Yeah, well, it's it's more cinematic, obviously, than, like, the Final Fantasy VII game is. 
Anyway, I think it goes okay. Like, they, they've tried to raise the stakes about it heading towards Rocket Town. It just doesn't really stick with me, anything about it. Sid's it piloting. Was... Yuffie's there, too. Who else is there? Someone else. It was really short, and it ended very abruptly. Mm. Like, this is the thing about it. It's like, I kind of wish... Uh, the Like we mentioned before, a lot of the fights kind of have some good notes. Yeah, like, they do. There's some good description. There's good description of use of materia or limit breaks without it being super like without it being like and cloud did a limit break kind of deal like it, you know what's fun but this to is to interrupt uh... you i totally skipped over tifa doing a sparring session against sankin's number two who is a total asshole yes. and like you know he he kind of gets some good hits in and stuff until she's totally infuriated and just unleashes a total can of whoop ass which is, of course, her limit break. But when you hear it described, it's so mm-hmm. brutal. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, she did this flip kick, and then she, like, pummeled him in the stomach, and then, like, he fell down, and she picked him back up, and she, like, threw him, yeah. and it's like, oh, the, my God. The <laughs> best part of this is that she stops right before doing Final Heaven because that would be the thing that kills him. <laughs> <laughs> Not the, like, six kicks to the face that came before that. Anyway, I just liked that because... Yeah, seriously. When you hear that described, like, one action after another, what Tifa is doing to this poor guy, and I say this poor guy after he's been, like, the worst person, like, even Well, then, yeah, he, he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's the guy that keeps threatening to kill everyone, right? Uh, probably, and he's also like, ah, oh, like, you probably suck, and I'm also probably gonna be misogynistic, and, like, everything, yeah. everything oh, yeah. to be a total yeah. jerk. But it's just, but... The, the brutality. It's like a it's Mortal Kombat finisher. It's like yeah. three of them strung together, really. Oh, that is what this author does well, is, like, describe those actual things as if they were real. And it's super fun, because you feel like you're in the game, but, like you said, Avato, it also feels, like, way more brutal, because it's being described, you know? Right. Like, realistically. It's not just a bunch of numbers. This is what Tifa is doing to a human body. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Super cool. You're, but, you're right. Yeah, this, this, this fight scene fight, doesn't get that same kind of no. cool visceral feel it's not badly described it's it's actually well described it's just kind of short and it's like the they talk about how the aircraft is weaving in and out of the weapons legs and also uh if i recall correctly you know honestly almost no one other than Sid actually does anything in this fight scene since he's piloting the airship and yet there are other people there for Really not very well-described reasons. We get to do a few comments from the peanut gallery. Yeah, that's about you it. Think, I think you're out of the materia drain range. You could probably, like, cast some spells, I don't know, yeah. from the side of the airship. Or, you know, just get out and shoot death penalty at it, Vincent, please. <laughs> death penalty gets stronger the more, what, enemies you've beaten? Kills, I believe. Kills. Yeah. So one would think that in this <laughs> post-Final Fantasy VII world where Vincent has been continually wandering around the world killing more monsters. He can probably get some work done, yeah. Yeah. Unless he hit the damage overflow glitch. It's a shame. Mm-hmm. And then there's a a second, you know, climactic scene where it's the conflict back at the, the base, right? And when they're fighting Zangin, like, he he gets to drop the reveal about, like, so why are you doing all this, like, terrible shit and, like, helping this guy conquer the world by seizing control of a weapon and being a, like, comic book supervillain? And he's like, well, the reason is that it's my son. It's like, oh, okay, that... Yeah. 
it's, he tries to act like it's a dramatic revealing, like he, he provides the whole backstory, but it's like, look, I knew, I didn't know anything about your life to begin with, Zankin. <laughs> so this is not like a shock. It's unknown information, but it's not like it changes what I understand about your backstory. Like, I, I don't know. Well, he does go on to describe like exactly what happened. Yeah. But yeah, it's... and I mean, he feels really bad. Basically, like he didn't know that he had this kid, and feels terrible about it, and comes back and is like trying to be a supportive father figure. And what you do when you're a supportive father figure is help your child take over the world. <laughs> like that's Obviously. what I, yeah. that's what I plan to do when my kids yeah. get older. Well, he does it... say that he hoped he would choose to use this technology for good. Right. But I think it was pretty clear that he didn't. For yeah. a long time coming now, right? Well, like, I, I mean, I do get it. Yeah, he's like, look, he's he's like really smart. He's doing this research. I was, I'm hoping they'll like come around, and they're like, I think we're past that point. Like, he's literally produced yeah. this weapon and sees control of it. Right, but even before that, we do get a, like a short scene of Quay's just like shooting a captive that they've got yeah. in the head, and Zangan's just like, oh well, darn, my son. Uh, I <laughs> guess he I don't will eventually this. get better. Okay, yeah. So is that, you know, I think we really need a father's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Amato, if Darius becomes a supervillain, will you uh, still support him? Uh, is he going to pay off our mortgage? Yeah, probably. I'll have to think about it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this, uh, I don't know. D- despite Amato's perspective here, I don't think it really rang true. <laughs> Look, Zangin doesn't have a mortgage. Yeah. He's yeah. been wandering so the world go. like a right. true yeah. ancient martial artist no should. No true motivation here. Um, but basically, it it with a little bit of conversation, he's like, oh, okay, yeah, actually, I guess my son's evil. I should probably stop him. And, like, they come in and confront Quaze with, like, his super materia. And Quaze gets to be all, like, totally, you know, Zangin says, Quaze, he's right. Cloud says, oh, Cloud says, your forces have been routed and give it up because, like, they've kind of beaten up everyone else or whatever. Mm-hmm. Quasi's right, Sankin said. End this before anyone else gets hurt. So that's it then, Father? And he spit the last word out as if it were a curse. You're turning against your own to cast your lot in with this scraggly band of thieves? What power does this girl hold over you? She holds no power, Sankin replied. She's just my friend. And you would choose this friend over your own son? Over a son such as you, I would gladly choose her or any of her friends. I have tried to look after you for the sake of your mother, but I see now that my feelings of guilt about her death have led me down a path that made me forsake everything I've ever believed in. Oh, the truth now of, you see. Right. Now. It's, I mean, that's a reasonable arc. It's just that it's like flipping a light switch mm-hmm. when he talks to the protagonists yes. about it. Yes. It's I not mean, yeah, like, especially from, and like, honestly, in world, it's sort of this. But especially for the reader, because you get the perspective, the whole backstory leading up to this, and then his ago. decision right. right afterwards. Same chapter, last chapter of the fanfic. <laughs> it's, like, very immediate. Yeah. Um, so that seems like the sort of thing that you could have built up as a series of flashbacks through the fanfic. Maybe maybe even instead of any kind of Yuffie scenes. Because, like, maybe the reveal that Yuffie's actually there could be a surprise instead of, I don't know, it being established or... Yeah. Or whatever. Or even you could have Zankin tell the party that Quaze is his son to earlier. That's because true. that would lend some more credibility to this random scientist that we don't know anything about. That's also true. Yeah. I didn't really think about that. It would actually establish the reason that he's there supporting him. Mm-hmm. 
there there are a lot of things I think that this author had really good ideas for. It's just, yeah, the way they were plotted and established leaves something to be desired. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quaze also shoots Sangin at the end of this scene, and the Phoenix Down problem is not addressed, just like Eris being stabbed. Yeah. Like, he, he gets to die and have last words in their arms. And, mm-hmm. oh no, the Phoenix... Okay, so Materia's not working. Eris is like, where's... A- not Eris. Kifa is like, where's Eris? She can help you because she's got some healing powers or whatever. I guess Materia's not working. Maybe that extends to, like, incredibly magical items we have a million of in our inventory not working. I could buy that. Yeah. Um, in any case, he dies. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of the Tifa fighting Zangan scene. Mm-hmm. Did we go over that at all? Oh, oh, I guess we did. I was just saying, yeah, that was like just part of the, the conflict here in this final fight. Did you want to say something about it? Oh, I don't know. Just I felt like there was an important part where uh, Tifa has to fight Zangan. It was before Weapon came on the scene, I guess. It's putting back and forth. I yeah, think. yeah. Think. It's about at about the same time yeah, because okay. the the conflict in the fortress is happening while Weapon uh, is heading yes, towards Rocket Town. They kind of do it in two scenes. Anyway, yes. It's it's really good because I think this was the one thing that made me believe Zangan, um, Zangan's character change at the end, realizing his son was shitty was that he wants Tifa to kill him, and he keeps leaving openings for Tifa to kill him. Yeah, and it should be noted that they're doing this with Quaze looking on, correct? Yes. Yeah. He's like, yeah, basically, like, it feels like Zangin has this pressure from his son to fight Tifa, because it's kind of like an order from his son, almost. And because of the guilt he feels for his son's mother having died and not having been there for a part of his life, he's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do what he says. And so that's kind of what made it believable to me, is when he's like, just kill me. Like, I'm old, you know, like... Uh, and I want to die in battle. I, don't I want to die just, in like... battle, because that's his, that's his moral code. Right. Is, like, where where he's at is, like, I don't know what else I can do. But Tifa, of course, doesn't kill him. However, I do think it's kind of a cop-out as a father, because, like, shouldn't you just be trying to educate your son a bit better? Like, come on. I don't know. Yeah, or I mean, like... Your morality shouldn't be dependent on whether or not this person is related to you. Like, the planet's at stake, guys. There's a lot of innocent lives here. Yeah. (laughs) But if he really wanted to help his son, he could have educated him instead of sitting back this whole time and quote-unquote supporting him and his, like, reign of terror. (laughs) It feels a little contrived. Yeah. Um, But they do... They do seize control of the super materia. Um, it's, you know, a huge materia, and Eris needs to get to it so that she can stop its control over the weapon, and she does. There's two, you know, fun yuffy character beats here. I guess one y- cool yuffy character beat. When she sees it, she's like, oh, look at the size of that thing. What are we going to do with it after Eris is done? And Eris is like, destroy it. It's unstable. Materia can't be concentrated in this intensity for too long, and if it's left this way, it's going to explode. But can't we just use it a couple of times first, she questioned. <laughs> yep. Eris ignored her and walked toward the chamber. And then I just want to comment at the very end of the yeah. fanfic. Um, I, I forget who checks in with Eris about the super materia. Um, probably, oh yeah, Red. Yes. At, at the very end of the fanfic, Red turns and looks at Eris. I was looking through some of Quaze's notes in the lab, he said, because Red's are academic now. 
They indicated that he had found a way to keep the supermateria stable. That may be true, Eris replied. Red looked at her with a puzzled expression. But he told Yuffie the supermateria was unstable. Eris shrugged. So I did, she said. And basically, she just told Yuffie that because she knew that there's no way Yuffie would not manage to take yeah. it if she knew that it still existed. And she just pocketed it. She's like, I thought it was supposed to be really big, but she's got it in her backpack. I guess it's not, I guess it's big for a materia, not yeah, like yeah. big for yes. a room. Yeah. Yeah. That's and so, yeah. given that the capabilities of the super materia were kind of vague and seemed to be pretty much like, not limitless, but, you know, deus ex machinae, I've got to wonder how much that comes back in future installments of this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, especially since it also apparently has the ability to stop all of the materia in its vicinity from working. That's true. It can drain power out of those. Oh, and the whole weapon situation, Sid does not destroy that weapon with the ship. He just distracts it enough so that Ares can remove control over it and then it departs. Yeah, yeah that that part was actually a little unclear to me. Um, uh, I thought that was fairly clear. Uh, it they're was they're just, like, oh, they must have done it, and like the weapon just kind of turns around and walks away, right? Uh, so it was just supposed to be a departing, because there was this big flash of light, so I guess it was like, did they destroy it? or? But I guess that makes sense now that I see it through. Um, and, and then there's an epilogue. Oh, wait, no, that is a little bit unclear. A huge ball of light comes. Maybe that was supposed yeah. to be Ares, like, removing the weapon. Yeah. Deleting weapon. Mm. It is, yeah, it's quite confusing. Yeah, because the ball of light comes and engulfs it, and then it's gone. But I can see that, you know, that there was kind of a conclusion emotionally for our characters, and that weapon wasn't summoned anymore and returned, I guess, is the... Yeah, that's I mean, what happened, right? No, you're right. That is a little unclear. I looking back at it, and you know we've got a um, we've got a a moment of Tifa angst where it's like all my parental figures get murdered. <laughs> that sucks, and it does. But she doesn't get to dwell on it. Mm-hmm. Um, she and Cloud get to be like we were both idiots, and it's like yes, you, you both were, but they almost apparently probably confess love, and it gets interrupted. Yeah. Because we needed to draw that out more, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, you know, to be honest, I was just going to forget about the, like, very end thing that happened before the epilogue. It's just like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, all of the emotional conflict between Cloud and Tifa just dissolves because it was stupid to begin with. End of story. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I'm I'm with you on that one. Uh, Not not to insult the writing too much but this felt very um you know like teenage rom-com e sort of uh love triangle stuff for a lot of the interactions between cloud and Aerith and tifa and that doesn't really set well with me especially having experienced a lot of the plots the romantic subplots in a lot of final fantasy games that doesn't really seem to be how it bore out in final fantasy 7 and it doesn't really seem to be how it any of the yeah. other romantic subplots in any final fantasy bear out hmm. i like how you say that it's like teenage rom commy though because it it is a little pulpy and if you view it in that perspective it makes it a little more palatable in the sense of, like, if you're looking for this pulpy kind of love triangle, there it is. It's just 
you know, I just didn't find it to be appropriate to the setting. The author notes at the end, the author does say like, yeah, this tale had a pretty classic storyline, quest, old master passing the torch to the next generation, you know, things like that. Um, but some plots never wear thin, and I think it's well suited to the characters. I'll try to be a little more innovative next time. What I do see here, you know, we're reading the first few stories of eight. I see the author kind of experimenting and stretching out a little bit. The first story... I mean, one of my comments back there was that it felt very constrained to kind of game um, areas, like kind of game realms mm -hmm. from Final Fantasy VII itself. And this one clearly are trying to stretch out into like, you know, new characters, new organizations, new, to some extent, new settings. I mean, it's mostly this like Arctic base, but it's not an Arctic base that existed in Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. And so I imagine that that same kind of process continues over the author doing another six stories. And it's always a pleasure of seeing especially amateurs doing publishing online. And you, like when you read a webcomic and you see the artist just get better over the course of like the first few years in particular because they're drawing every day. I'm sure you would see this author doing more interesting things, maybe still not necessarily character things that you personally would approve of, but maybe stretching their abilities a little bit. That having been said, we're probably not reading any more of this series. Because mm -hmm. there's other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do we want to address the kind of like epilogue part of this too? Where uh... I feel like we did sort of gloss over the final conflict, final part of the conflict between oh, yeah. Quays and the party as well. Because oh, yeah, yeah. Did anything the, the fight there? with, well, I mean, not too much does just sort of end up being defeated by the the party members but i feel like we even sort of glossed over the fact that we have the sort of tired old trope of quays trying to shoot tifa and zangan getting in the way of it oh, and that's yeah, sort I, I of forgot. why he's that's dying why he dies. <laughs> uh, yeah. and i feel like that's probably at least worth mentioning we were sort I, of um I skipping of, around a bit i actually forgot about that you're totally right <laughs> wait did you think quiz just shot zangan <laughs> with no motivation here uh, out of out, out of, of blue. <laughs> sense of betrayal yeah that's kind of what uh, stuck in my mind oh no yeah he was protecting tifa which actually is is really poignant because it shows how much he does care for Tifa and this little shit of a son. At least he has this daughter he can protect who is yeah. their daughter figure at least. But, you know, come on. It, it, it fills that void because, yeah, there's nothing like imagine feeling like responsible for a child who turned out to want to destroy the world. What a terrible feeling. So he can at least claim... Tifa as a legacy that, mm. you know, and, and do that for her. And I, I do think that was a super poignant moment. Yeah, and there are, we're getting some sort of themes connecting across the different um, stories in this fan fiction where, you know, like Lucretia is sort of going through the same thing, but it's sort of driving her mad with the whole idea that her son might have been responsible for trying to destroy the world. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of focus on Zangan. Uh, having to deal with a similar problem, um, but also having having Tifa. So we get sort of a juxtaposition between Tifa and Quaze by the end when we finally realize that Quaze is Zangan's son. Mm. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> so point. I mean. There's, uh, for the listeners who, who listen to the first episode, there's a good juxtaposition of Zangan and Lucretia and how they treat their kids here. So 
wait a moment, how did Zangin intercept that bullet for Tifa if his cover material wasn't working? <laughs> it's a plot hole. Hmm. He must have uh, a passive cover ability. There you go. <laughs> Actually, maybe the the super material was inactive at that point. I don't quite remember. Uh, oh, and, no, no. It was still inactive because it's inactive through the rest of the fight with Quays up until the very oh, end. Oh, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I I would like to point out, um, there is sort of a, a shootout scene and uh, where uh, some of the the protagonists are trying to flank around Quays while he's trying to shoot. Because apparently he's an expert marksman, which is barely mentioned, but is apparently the case. And I'm willing to buy that. Um <laughs> And that whole scene sort of ends with uh, him getting, getting clunked in the head with materia and oh, being right. knocked out. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do probably need to finish up this episode, though. Yeah. We have ragged on this fanfic a reasonable amount. Is there anything we want to complain about before we finish praise at the end of the episode? Well, we, d- we didn't get to the epilogue. <laughs> Wait, what, what epilogue? What epilogue are you talking about? Well, there's no, like, designated epilogue, but, like, the very last the scene action? where yes. Sid... Well, I consider it an epilogue oh, because yeah. it skips scenes and it's in the future. It's not falling action. Freaking to me, it's Sid. an epilogue. I just didn't want this to happen, so go, <laughs> ahead and, Sid, go ahead and say it. Well, I, I think, to me, I'm going to do this as a complaint. Right. And let's go over this last scene, which is skipping forward in time. And Sid is marrying Shira. Mm-hmm. And it's because when Weapon was going towards Rocket Town, he realized how important she was. And it's just like, y'all nah. Like, this last scene, it's really frustrating. It felt like the author... They wanted to do this thing with Sid where he acknowledged his feelings. But as we've mentioned before, he's never been kind to Shira. We kind of need some establishment there that there's any kind of shift. And guess who doesn't get to say anything in this scene? It's Shira. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody's like slapping on the back like, you old dog. And then the women get together and the men get together. Which, yeah. (laughs) Oh, geez. There are a couple of scenes that are sort of like that in this in this fan fiction if we're getting to complaints. But I think this is the most egregious. <laughs> oh, yes. But, I mean, like, there's a scene that seems really out of character earlier on where, like, Eris is insisting on going with Cloud and he's trying to be kind of protective of her. In a chauvinistic way. Y- y- it's sort yeah. of implied that it is very, very much in a chauvinistic way. And, like, there's a legitimate idea that Aerith is less good at hand-to-hand fighting without magic, right? which is something of a legitimate reason to at least, you know, like, make sure that she's safe in a combat setting. But it's, yeah, it's really just, um, like, it it gets really bad because there's, like, a scene where she insists on coming anyways and then, like, in a very intensely out of character for Cloud, as far as I am concerned, moment he like throws his hands up in the air and just goes, "Women!" Like it's just Can't argue with so him. bad. <sighs> Anyways, the, the gender politics in this fanfic are not the most fun to read. It's true, but it's also not usually the main point. No. It's yes, not. it only comes up a couple of times. Right. I was just particularly annoyed by that because of how out of character it was for Cloud specifically. And, and I think literally I just did not want to think about the Shira thing because I, I'm much happier with the plot beat being Shira walked out on Sid. We can all celebrate yeah. compared to like, uh, they're going to get married. Great. 
Yeah. But, you know, it's hard because... I would also be fine with... Sorry. I, I would also be fine with Sid having, you know, character development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially, but this was his character development. Like it was he realized to be, yes. this was supposed to be. Yeah, he realized that that he cared about her. I'm sorry, I meant but, actual character development. Yes, no, and that's what I'm saying is this kind of frustrating ending to me because it was the ending was a little overshadowing. Now, what does happen at the very end is Cloud and Tifa get to make up, and it's kind of nice because Tifa admits some feelings and Cloud supports her and they almost kiss and they're interrupted and it's kind of funny but as far as having this be Sid and the wedding I felt like honestly this represents my biggest criticism it was that character moments were taken and used as plot devices such as Sid's apparent character development that wasn't supported of developing into a wedding to use as a setting for Cloud and Tifa to make up was very forced, and I felt like we kind of gone over ways in which there were other forced moments in this fanfic. So that was kind of my biggest criticism, was the, the element of forced character beats to create plot movement. I think that's all valid. To be clear, this is not actually the wedding. It's just the, like, cel- oh, sorry, people, it's yes. people celebrating my from bad. the wedding announcement. Uh, did yes. I say wedding? Uh, yeah, I meant engagement. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> All right, anything else we want to complain about before we turn to praise? I mean, that we that we haven't already or that we yeah. want to uh, emphasize? We did sort of talk about how in character the, the different characters were in the first part, but I feel like adding to that is probably important to talk about Aerith in this part. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I, I didn't really feel like this character was very in line with Aerith from the games. Because Aerith is always sort of, like, playful and... You know, and... playful is exactly the adjective I was coming up with in my head while you started saying that about, like, how would I describe her personality? Well, she's playful. Yeah. To start with. Yeah, but in this, she, she sort of comes off as um, this sort of... Um... Uh, I know she's like very serious. Yeah, like yes, yes. Um, like kind of one dimensional. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> her planet connection is the main thing happening with her mm-hmm. through this whole story, and I mean, I guess even her character note at the very beginning when it's talking about what she's been doing since coming back from the dead. It's like, oh, we're going, like, learning more about the ancients. That's still kind of just reinforcing her planet connection as opposed to, I don't know, anything else about her, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. But I feel like we have ragged on this author for their uh, 21-year-old 20, fanfic well enough. Let's try to find some things to praise as we finish up this episode. And I'm, I'm trying to find some things to praise. I don't want to say it's all bad. It's not all bad. We've talked about some of the things we've liked already. Mm-hmm. Um, including a lot of the combat descriptions are really f- cool, and a lot of the character interactions are really fun. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I think this was, a, you know, both of the fanfics we read, but were very good. Um, and this one, in particular, I thought the plot, like, despite moments where it was, like, a little forced or a little bit 
contrived. I actually was really engaged in the plot. I really liked the plot and the twist about Quiz being Zangan's son I didn't expect, and it provided good motivation for Zangan. I wish it would have been explained more, but like regardless of that, you could see this as an episode of a TV show or video game plot. Like, I would have liked more explanation of certain things, but it doesn't mean that those things weren't good twists or good plot points. Hmm. And as far as the pacing, the pacing was really good. And things kind of developed along a good plot line. Like, you get these moments of lightheartedness between the characters, and then you get these moments of tension. And I think and, that's important in yeah. Final Fantasy VII sort of milieu. Yeah, exactly. Because you definitely have that in the story, where it's like, well, okay. this is serious life, life of the planet or death of the planet situations. Yes. But you still mm-hmm. intersperse that with these lighthearted scenes where everyone can kind of be, like, goofy or relaxed or at least, like, be doing fun things. You get to, like, you know, uh, infiltrate a ship and Red is stuck in a outfit and his tail is still sticking out the back or, you know, yeah. whatever. Yes. And I think this one in particular of the two fan book we read was like, the first one was like the search for Aerith, right? Like there's a plot right there, but this was the author trying to come up with something completely new and yeah. they still involved the life of the planet and another threat to that life, but a very creative one. And so, yeah, they did a great job of that balance, creating a plot and creating, like, interest for the story. It was really well done. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I feel like I I keep going back to, like, little moments when I'm talking about what I find praiseworthy. But there are some, again, like, legitimately well-written scenes or little snippets that I found to be very, very good. Um, So, for example... uh, when they're going towards the forest, we get this sort of description of this mist-covered valley, which worked very well as a description of a place in, in a fan fiction that is very light on descriptions of locations. Mm. Th- having this new location that the characters are going into and describing it, uh, having this sort of sense of being lost in the fog uh, and then eventually being able to find their way because they hear a river and go towards that and then follow the river upstream and find tracks from there. And they're trying to hunt down this fortress in this location. Uh, and I found that they that was very effective for communicating that idea of uh, this setting and the challenges that would be presented to the characters in that setting. Uh, and the same was sort of true with when Reno and Cloud were trying to wander through the snowstorm, the freezing snowstorm. And then uh, you got a pretty good description that I think communicated the emotions of that scenario very well, where, uh, you know, it's from Cloud's perspective and he goes from, um, you know, like focusing on getting from landmark to landmark to, to his like vision narrowing and just focusing on moving his, moving his feet in front of him. I don't necessarily like how that, ended with them sort of collapsing in the snow before other people can find them because of the way that the tropes work out basically. But I I do like the intention of that scene a lot. All right. I think that closes out our discussion. Thank you so much again for joining us, Chris, for a double episode of the same series. Mm -hmm. I think 
I think we just had too many words to say about Final Fantasy VII, and so we just weren't able to fit it into one episode. Yeah, well, and about these fanfics in general, which is, I guess, a point in their favor. Yeah, there's definitely stuff to discuss in this. Yeah. Well, what fanfics have we read where we just kind of had to reach for, like, anything to say about them? You weren't there for that episode, Tori, but when we tried to talk about Redeath, which is the Evangelion parody fan yeah. dub from, you know, 2000, we were just like, what, what do you say about this? Yeah, well, to be fair, I don't think there's too much positive to say about it. So. That was part of the problem, yeah. yeah. And we try to be positive on this podcast. Right. We do? Maybe <laughs> well, I didn't get this memo. We do our best. We do what we can. Yeah. Next we week. We try to be fair. Yes, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Fair and balanced reporting about uh, old. Um, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't aspire to that particular <laughs> phrase. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we need to be very fair to these old fanfics because everyone cares deeply about our opinions and our judgments on them. Uh, hopefully we'll have lots of positive things to say next week because we're reading a fairly famous Star Trek The Original Series fanfic called Mind Sifter. And... You know, that's what, that's a big fanfiction scene. When you're fairly famous in Star Trek The Original Series, hopefully that's a good sign. This particular story was by Shirley S. Uh, I don't know how to say her last name. Mayuski, Mayuski, Mayuski. Grandma Trek, or the grandmother of Trek, as she is sometimes known. And it, it's even been adapted into a fan-filmed episode of, um, I think, Star Trek The New Journeys is the fan series online. Mind Sifter. If you don't want to read it, you can go watch the fan episode, perhaps. And you can find a link to that online at bit.ly slash rfrmind. As for this, this was episode 60 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, The Red Fist, which is the second story in Frank Verderosa's Final Fantasy VII Internet series by Frank Verderosa. Uh, you can find our link to that, to the fanfiction.net reposting of that at bit.ly slash series. Then you're going to have to navigate to the Red Fist yourself. It's down towards the bottom. They're in reverse order. The eighth story is on top. You definitely need to know this. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, please contact us on Twitter or Facebook at Retrofanfic or on Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective. You can send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com or leave comments or reviews on Apple Podcasts or whatever other service you use. Please contact us. Let us know what you think about episodes. Let us know what you think about fan fiction, especially old fan fiction. Send recommendations our way, whatever you might like. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Chris. We're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other until the planet dies. Until next time, take care. Oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Was that too dark? <laughs> too real? Well, I mean, it yeah. should be our job to try to stop it, right? <laughs> we must form an eco-terrorist group called yes. Avalanche. Avalanche wait, 2.0. Wait, wait. Uh, just kidding, NSA. <laughs> <laughs> just get me some materia and I'll get right on that. No, 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 no. Just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. <laughs>
also remember to turn the sound off on your phone so I don't get a text message noise when you're recording. And they also said the real fan fiction is the friends you made along the way. <laughs> but also they texted that at 9.50, so if we had forgotten to turn off the sound on our phones, right. we would have gotten a text message notification. So I feel like that was just like kind of some uh, self-sabotage right there. <laughs> uh, like, Dom, you wanted to not have an editing error and you texted us in the middle of the podcast about not texting during the podcast. Like, Dom texted me at like 10 o'clock and it was like, make sure you turn off the sound on your phone so I don't have a text message noise. I'm like, <laughs> that was terrible. All right, anyway. Yeah. Yep. Cruel joke. All right, ready? Okay, yes. We're recording now. And I just realized that Dom is going to listen to everything I just said. <laughs> <Wild> <laughs> Who knows what revenge they'll take? I know. All right, ready? There we should go. Fiery spirit. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> I'm just a. But.